The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn with me to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 15. And chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 16 and chapter 1. Would you turn to both of them? You can do that. I know you can. You're amphibious. Romans 1 and Romans 16. That crossway is put together, and that's available if you'd like to make use of that as well. Look with me in Romans chapter 1. This is the Word of God, inspired and errant, infallible and sufficient, that is read in your hearing. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised before him through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now slip over to Romans 16, two verses. Verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And then if you would look down at verse 23, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greets you. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and his mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Well, finally, and God has allowed me and my life and ministry to come to a commitment to work through an expository series of the book of Romans, identified with the phrase that Paul uses on this book, the gospel of God. I tell you what, I've shared this in a couple of places. Let me share it with all of you. I'll tell you how I feel. Um, if you followed me in my baseball career years ago, you would have found that I played first base, third base, and catcher. There's something, a common denominator. Those are the positions that require absolutely very little foot speed. And that's why they put me there. And uh, But I had the opportunity for a little while to pitch. I'll never forget the first time I was called to pitch and told I was going to be the starting pitcher. And two things hit me. Number one, I was unbelievably excited. And number two, I was trembling with intimidation. Now, the reason I was excited was because I knew how important it was, the pitcher and pitching and that starting opportunity. 
The reason I was intimidated is because I was fully aware of my inadequacies and incompetencies for such a task. Well, that's exactly the way I feel for this. There's not another book I would choose to preach to you in this day and time than Romans. Not another one. Uh, Not another one at all. I believe it is the magnus opus that the Apostle Paul wrote of his 13 epistles. It wasn't the first one he wrote, but there is a reason. After Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, after Acts, the history of the church, the very first of the epistles for teaching us about Christianity, the very first one is Romans. In the canon of Scripture. There is a reason why it has such a place of prominence. My illustration is this. I I consider the 66 books of the Bible like the Himalayan mountains with peak after peak of glorious majesty. But Mount Everest for me is the book of Romans. It is incomparable. It is unbelievable as it expounds the gospel of God. It is the manifesto of the gospel of God. It is life changing. In every respect, when, it, when, we, uh, when we address it and address it properly. Now, how are we going to address it? Well, I want to be timely. Um, I, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on Romans, and, uh, uh, and it, um, he preached for 17 years on Romans. Relax. I'm not going to do that. Number one, I'm not Martin Lloyd-Jones. Number two, I can't imagine doing that myself, much less for you. But, on the other hand, it deserves a thorough treatment. I don't think the objective is to get done with Romans. I think the, objection, the objective is for Romans to get done with us. That's the objective. And I don't believe I need to approach Romans like a sprint. I think a marathon would be more appropriate. I remember years ago, um, when I was 40 years old, I decided, well, I'm 40 years old. I don't like to run, but I do run because it's the most inexpensive and quickest way to to try to get some exercise. And you don't need to do any planning for it. Just get a pair of shorts and shoes and run. And so I'd started jogging and my kids and girls had gotten into it. And they, of course, became very adept at it up through college. But I finally decided, well, I need to go and I decided to run a marathon. And uh, so I learned a lot in a marathon, and there are some consequences to it. Two knee surgeries. I did get a towel with a with a seal on it and the time, four hours and 18 minutes. I did get that uh, that was given to me. And uh, but I also learned some other things about a marathon, and that is uh, and and watching my daughters train in distance running is that one of the keys is in distance running is what they call negative splits. In other words. Each mile you run, is the next one is supposed to be faster than the previous one. That's the way you're supposed to run it. Well, if you're running a marathon, 26.2 miles, guess what ought to be the fastest mile? The last mile. And if the last mile is the fastest mile, that meant the one before it was not quite as fast. But that would mean what? Logically, that would mean the first mile is the slowest mile. Okay, I just got you prepared for this series. Our slowest mile is going to be verses 1 through 7 of Romans. We got to take just a little bit of time to make sure we've got the context. Now, here's the good news. We're going to get faster. We're going to get faster. 
Now, when I ran the marathon, that was not the case. Um, I did uh, my my fastest mile was my first mile. My slowest mile was my last mile. That was the opposite of what it was supposed to be. In fact, my last mile was so slow that the EMT, uh, that's the emergency medical uh, technician in the emergency medical V, the EMV and the EMT, the EMT and the EMV rode by me five times on that last mile. And the guy that was sitting in the back that was the EMT was a guy I went to school with and played ball with. And he said, I remember what he said the first time he came by. Ike, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I've asked myself that question for the last 26 miles. And he said, um, then he rode by again. Are you OK? I'm OK. Then I remember looking at the side of the EMV. Their logo was an EKG graph. You remember, it goes like this. And unfortunately, and then I looked at it a little closer. The graph went up and down and then it flatlined. And I began to wonder, is this prophecy uh, or what is this? And then he rode by the fifth time he came by. He said, are you sure you're OK? I said, I'm fine, Bill. He said, um, you don't look fine. And so they kind of followed me on in just to make sure. So I didn't I didn't do it the way we're going to do this. We're going to pick up speed as we go through. But it's absolutely crucial that we take a moment in this opening paragraph. What do we need to see? Who is writing this? What is his burden? What is he writing? Where is he when he writes it? When does he write it? To whom is he writing? Why is he writing? I'm not really excited about our current forms of communication, texting and emails. I kind of long for the days of letters a little bit. And this, of course, is a letter. But actually, this letter from the first century takes what I think is one of the few assets of emails and texts. Harry, what do you think? What uh, what asset do you see about an email or a text? I believe emails and texts are an asset in this sense. What's the first thing you see when you get an email or a text? What's the first thing you see? Who wrote it? That always affects how you read it. When you know who wrote it, you know how. Now, when we write a letter, who wrote it, you put at the end. But the email and the text is like a first century letter, which you put who wrote it at the beginning. And Paul puts himself at the beginning to let us know he wrote it. And when you know when somebody's writes something, that affects how you read it, how you approach it, how focused you are. And then who it, when Peter's writing something, I know there's a certain... You see, when the Holy Spirit inspired human authors, 40-plus human authors, and the Holy Spirit inspired the prophets and the apostles that give you the Word of God, He didn't make them automatons. He didn't make them robots. He worked through them as He sovereignly had framed them and fashioned them and developed them. So a so you see a Peter writing with his fisherman Greek and his insight. And his, you see his personality. It comes through them. So that's exactly what happens. And so this is Paul. He writes 13 epistles for us. And as you read his epistles, there's something that becomes Pauline. 
There's something about Paul. And when you know Paul, you know the Paulinisms. You know what he's saying. You know something about him. That's why it's important. So this morning, I just propose to take a brief look at who he is and where he's writing from. And when does he send this? And then we'll come back to answer the other questions in the uh, next Lord's Day. But I want us just to take the time to do that. Who is he that is writing this? Now, we know Paul is right. Even the liberals have to affirm the fact that this is a Pauline letter. So that that authorship is not challenged. But what does it mean that Paul wrote this letter? Well, take a look at something Paul gives you. Now, I call this Paul's magnus opus. This is his distillation of the manifesto of the gospel of God. And I want you to see something about the man who's writing. But first of all, I want you to see what he wants you to see. And there's three things he tells you about himself in the text itself. Take a look back at Romans chapter 1. What is the first thing he tells you about himself? He says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, in your Bible, if you write or in your note sheet, you can write. That word servant is the word doulos. Now, in your Bible, whenever the Greek word doulos is present... It is not always translated the same way. There are three words that are used to translate the word doulos. And that is the word, sometimes it's the word bondservant. Sometimes it's the word servant. Sometimes it's the word slave. A doulos was a slave. But sometimes they're called the bondservant because the context means that they aren't simply slaves by birth or conquest. They are slaves by their own commitment. Maybe they're paying off a debt. Maybe they've been liberated by a master, but they in love enslave themselves back to the master. So sometimes they're called bond servants. Sometimes they're called slaves. Sometimes they're just called servants. But this is interesting. In Roman Empire, the only people that you knew would not be slaves were Roman citizens. Somebody tell me, what, is Paul a Roman citizen? But he calls himself a slave, not of Caesar, of Christ Jesus. By the way, notice that phrase, Christ Jesus. Basically, when Paul's leading up to the cross, he talks to you about Jesus the Christ. After the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, he flips it. Christ Jesus, the one who's won the victory as the Messiah. So he says, I am the ascended, victorious prophet, priest and king, my redeemer. I am his. I was the slave to sin. Now, out of the love of Christ, I've been set free. And because I love Christ, I am now his slave. I belong to him. You see, now, interestingly, the slaves in Roman in the Roman Empire, the, approximately 60 percent of the population were enslaved. Approximately 60 percent. But don't think of them all working in the fields or working as domestic slaves. Some slaves were doctors. Some slaves were lawyers. Some slaves were teachers. When one was a slave, they had multiple occupations they could be in. Here you have one who is a slave to Christ Jesus. And what is he? Look at the next thing he says. 
This one who is a slave to Christ Jesus is called to be an apostle. See that word called? That's an important word in your Bible because that's a word referring to you. You're the called ones. The Bible says we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called ones. For whom he called, he also predestined. So we are the called ones of the Lord. But then when you're called, you have callings, vocational responsibilities before the Lord. So I've been called, now watch, externally by evangelism. I had people share the gospel with me. Then I was called internally by the Holy Spirit who gave me eyes to see and ears to hear. Then once I was called to Christ, and now I am a not only a son of the living God, but a slave to Christ. I not only rejoice in my sonship, but in my slaveship to Christ Jesus. Now this Christ whom I serve out of love because he loved me, this Christ has given me callings. Called to be a husband, called to be a father, called to be the pastor of Briarwood. I'm called to be a, I'm called to be a citizen in the United States of America. Now, before I was all those things, but once I became a Christian, I saw them as divine callings, not just occupations. Can I put it this way? This coming Sunday night, we're, we're going, I mean, tonight, we're going to do something very important in the life of the church because we, do, we don't go where our leaders don't take us. So this is an important uh, gathering uh, of God's people. But, and, and I think it's right we do this sacred act following the biblical precedence of ordination and installation. But in a real sense, I agree with John Calvin and Martin Luther. In a real sense... There is a sense where we ought to ordain you if you're a brick salesman. We ought to ordain you as a husband, as a father. We ought to ordain you in your ownership of a business or in your employment as an employee. Do your work heartily unto the Lord. These are divine callings in your life. And when you become a Christian, it totally changes how you see it. Now, Paul's calling was not just to be an apostle like all of us, as the Father sent me, so send I you. His calling was a capital A apostle. That's what he was called. He's part of the foundation of the church. The church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Old Testament and New Testament, all pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone. The third thing we now find out about him, he's not only a servant but he's, and called to be an apostle, but the third thing, he says, my life has been set apart for the gospel of God. Not only did the gospel of God bring him life, not only did the gospel of God bring him what it means to live, he now says, I live for the sake of the gospel. Everything I do, the gospel, now catch this, the gospel is the foundation, the formation, and the motivation of my life. Why do I go to work? I'm, go, I'm going for the sake of the gospel. How do I do my family? I, I, I am a gospel dad. I'm a gospel mom. I'm a gospel worker. I'm a gospel citizen. I am the gospel of God is found my foundation, my formation, and my motivation in my entire life. I am set apart for the gospel of God. And I love that phrase, gospel of God. Harry, what is the gospel of God? 
I am so glad you asked me that question because I now will invite you back next Sunday. We're from this same text. I'm going to give you the seven things that Paul says the gospel of God is. But here's let me go ahead and give you this. It's the gospel of God. We serve God. One God in. What? Three persons. The gospel is not simply about Jesus. The gospel is the gospel of God. The love of God. In fact, if you'll take a look at that text, he says it is the love of God, the father and the love of God, the son and the power of the Holy Spirit that gives you grace and peace. It is a Trinitarian gospel. And he tells you what that gospel is in its essence and how to understand it and what its implications are in your life. The gospel of God. So that's how he presents himself. Now, we know some more about the Apostle Paul. We know a lot more about the Apostle Paul. Because in your Bible, five different times, Paul gives his testimony in part or whole. And when you put them all together, you begin to see some things about him. Now, I'm going to, this is one of those things that I'm going to ask you to do that I don't really want you to do, but I do want you to do just for a moment. Trust me. Now, I do want you to don't just trust me that I'm infallible. Go check me on the Bible later, but I actually want you to do it later. Don't do it right now. Let me lay out for you this, this Paul who says he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart from the gospel of God. What does this Paul tell you about himself as the Holy Spirit inspired him and he records his testimonies in Acts and in Galatians and in other passages of Scripture? Here's what he says about himself. Number one, his name becomes Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles. He takes a Gentile name. But that wasn't his original name. His original name was what? Saul, we don't know the place of his birth, but we do know where his childhood was. He lived in Asia Minor, a very important city of a Roman colony called Tarsus. And he lived in the middle of the Jewish community and was active in the synagogue. We know all of that because of what he says. So he lived in Tarsus and we know that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, which, by the way, who would be the most famous person that we know out of the tribe of Benjamin beside Benjamin? Who would that maybe be? Come on, this isn't hard. Saul. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, guess what they gave him? The most famous guy. They gave him his name. Saul. Now, it is my conviction, having done the study in the scripture and some extra biblical work, that Paul lived in Tarsus as a child under his parents up to age 13. At age 13 is the normal age that they would be sent away for education. Where was he educated? In Jerusalem. So I believe he was sent to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? That's where the school was. He went to the school of Gamaliel and he studied the law of the Lord under Gamaliel and became a, quote, lawyer and teacher 
of that law. That's why it would later say he is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He became a part of the Sanhedrin and he was mentored in that context. So I believe he was there from age 13 to 30, undergoing his education formally and informally. I believe he was actually in Jerusalem while Jesus lived. I do believe that. In fact, I think he would have known about Jesus coming into the temple when Jesus came to the temple on the occasions in his public ministry. But that's speculation on my part because it kind of fits the time period of what he would have been. Now, Harry, why 30? Because he then became a a delegate an emissary, a formal servant of the Sanhedrin, and he was get put into his hands arrest warrants and death warrants for Christians and to destroy churches wherever he could find them. And he was sent out. You could that would not happen until you're thirty years of age. So he likely has come there. By the way, he had relatives in Jerusalem. So he probably moved to Jerusalem, stayed with an uncle and aunt, because we know he had a cousin that was there that helped save his life later. And so he is living in Jerusalem, going through education. He is there as he's finishing up his internship at the martyrdom of Stephen, holding the cloaks as the Sanhedrin is in charge of his execution. And then he goes out with warrants, death warrants and arrest warrants throughout all the church. And then what happens on the road to Damascus? He gets converted. That's what happens to it. And then he gets sent to Damascus to a place called the street called straight. And it is there he meets Ananias. And it is there that it is confirmed. He is now called. He is now a servant of Christ Jesus. He's saved by grace. And he's called to be an apostle. And he's told, you're going to take the gospel to the Jew and to the Gentiles. And I'm going to put you in front of governors and kings and people that are in authority. You're going to go to the seats of power. And he is instructed. From there, he goes up to Jerusalem. And he spends some time with the apostles. From there, he is taken out into the wilderness and taught for three years by Jesus directly. The risen Jesus gives him his seminary education over three years in the wilderness. Then he is called to be the associate pastor at a place called Antioch, where the Christians were first called Christians under his ministry of discipleship with Barnabas. Then he is set apart for a missionary journey with Barnabas, and he does the first missionary journey. Then he comes back and after the general assembly at Jerusalem, he is sent out on a second missionary journey. And he comes back and reports to the church at Antioch. Then he goes out on a third missionary journey. And when he gets out to, he's three years in Ephesus. He is 18 months in Corinth. And from Ephesus, after giving 18 months in Corinth, he goes to Ephesus. And then from Ephesus, he goes back over to Corinth. And while he is at Corinth for another three months, it is there that he writes the letter from Corinth. That's where he is when he writes the letter. He is in Corinth. In fact, he is at the seaport of Corinth called Sincrea. And he puts it in the hands of the female patron of the church at Corinth and Sincrea. Her name is Phoebe, who will take the letter to Rome. He is staying at the house of Gaius. He is being supported by a city treasurer. 
When I take people to Israel and we go to Athens, I take them to the place where the clock with Erastus' name is on the name that's right where the church used to meet at Corinth. And his brother, Cordus. And so from there, now when did that happen? I know the month. I'm not sure of the year. The month is March because of what happens with the feast and everything. As this, If you want to know where this happens, goes to Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. That's where this is all taking place. And, and what we know as we do our study, we find out that it's in March. And we know that because of the celebration of the feast of the Passover. What we don't know is the year. It's either 57 or 58 A.D. He will leave there and he'll make his way back to Jerusalem. He will be he will be arrested in Jerusalem. Then he will be put in prison at Caesarea by the sea for an extended period of time. And he could have been set free, but he appealed to Rome because remember what? I want to get to Rome. He says that 12 times in the first chapter. I look to get to Rome. I've asked the Lord to get to Rome. Well, the Lord opened up a way for him to get to Rome. Free prison ministry from Caesarea by the sea to Rome. And he goes to Rome for his first Roman imprisonment. And he is there three years later after he wrote this epistle. He arrives in 60 and he is there for two years in prison. Then he is set free and he does his fourth missionary journey. We don't know where he goes, but we do know two things he wrote. First Timothy and Titus. And then he's rearrested by Nero. And this will end in his death. Ten years after writing this book in approximately 67 A.D., he'll die. But right now, when he writes this book, he's on the third missionary journey. He has just finished three months at Corinth. He's at Sincrea, and he writes this to those people as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Pastor, where would this lead us to at a moment like this? This magnus opus of the gospel of the Apostle Paul. What now that we know who he is, now that we know where he was and when he wrote it, what is it that this is telling us? Well, let me give you just one takeaway now that we know who's writing this. Here's what I would suggest to you that you know. Paul, the Holy Spirit-inspired author of the book of Romans, had a singular identity in life that resulted in a multifaceted, intentional life. He had a singular identity in life. He is a servant of who? Come on, folks. Can I help you out here just a little bit? If I ask a question and you know the answer, please feel free to speak out. And if I say something that's biblical and your heart is with it, feel free to say, thank you. So let me ask again. He is a servant of who? Christ Jesus. He is. Who who called him to be an apostle? Christ Jesus. He is set apart for the gospel of what? Do you get the God-centered identity of his life? Was Paul a Roman citizen? Yes. Was Paul a Jew? Yes. Was Paul educated? 
Was he a lawyer? Don't hold it against him. Yes. Yes. You know all of those things. But none of them are his identity. Was Paul a legalist that thought he could be saved by his works? Yes. But he didn't call him a, he didn't call himself a legalist Christian. He didn't call himself a liberated Christian. He called himself Christian. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. He's going to take a whole chapter to tell us about this in Romans chapter 6. He has a singular identity. I am a slave servant of Christ. I am an apostle called by Christ. I preach and set apart for the gospel of God. In fact, he twelve this Paul that never likes to talk about himself, this Paul that is self-effacing, that's bold but humble. If you go through that first chapter, which I'm not going to walk you through it, but I will tell you this. This is what he says. Twelve things about himself. I thank the Lord always for you. I thank the Lord for my salvation. I long to see you. And God is my witness. He even takes an oath on this. God is my witness. I pray to succeed in coming to you. I sought, I sought to come to you repeatedly. I desire to impart to you a spiritual gift. I do not want you to be unaware. I often intended to come to you. I am eager to come to you. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it that you find out about this man? He has one identity, and that identity is Christ Jesus is his life. That gives him multifaceted intentionality. He is an intentional evangelist. I want to get to Rome to evangelize Jew and Gentile, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I am not ashamed of the God. He is an intentional evangelist. He is relentless. He is unstoppable. He is an intentional churchman. Now that Christ is his and he is Christ, he loves everything that Christ loves. And Christ loved his church and gave himself for it. The Apostle Paul would never have thought about, well, I think I'll be a member of a church. And when they gather together, I'll show up if it works out in my schedule. No, no. He was an intentional churchman. I long to be with you. I want to come and impart to you a spiritual gift. I repeatedly, I can almost imagine the throne room of heaven. Here's Paul again asking to get to Rome. I long to be there. I long to be with you. He was an intentional evangelist. He was an intentional churchman. And he was an intentional stewardship. Our ministry theme is what? Lifestyle stewardship. What does it mean to be a steward? It means to be found faithful. What does Paul want to be found faithful? He wants to be found faithful to the gospel of God, to the great commission, to the great commandment. He wants to be found faithful to Jesus Christ as his life. Jesus did not he did not come to Jesus for Jesus to help him out with his difficulties in life. He came to Jesus as his life. That's his identity. Recently, I was talking to someone about, well, Pastor, what do you think about the fact that if someone comes and becomes a Christian out of a life of sexual immorality, even, say, homosexuality? I say, praise the Lord. Well, how about, so, gay Christian, right? 
Well, they may be saying that, but they won't be saying it long. Not if I have the privilege to disciple them. Our identity is never our sins. Our identity is not our sins prior to our conversion, nor the entangling sins we deal with after conversion. Our identity is Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. That's our singular identity. I have no other one. Let me put it this way. Uh, maybe I can wake somebody up if you've gone to sleep. Let me put it this way. I am not an American Christian. I am a Christian American. The Apostle Paul, on five different occasions, spoke of his Roman citizenship, but that wasn't his identity. His identity was, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. Christ is my king. Christ is my life. I am more than happy. Remember, the adjective controls the noun. I am not an American Christian. I'm a Christian American. I am a Christian husband. I am a Christian father. I am a Christian grandfather. Praise the Lord. This is fun. I am a Christian pastor. My relationship with Christ is not the add-on and my identities of life or my work or my politics or my nationality or my sports teams. That's not my identity. My identity is called to be a Christian. For me to live is Christ. Christ is my life. Life is Christ. And to live is for Christ. Die is gain. That's what the Bible is telling us with the gospel of God. So let me ask you a question that I've asked myself. So if I go up to your family, your friends, your co-workers, your teammates, your classmates. If I go up to the people that know you and say, what's their identity? I mean, this is a big deal. Now we're into the year. We're into the days of identity, politics, identity, everything. And we're in a world that says with the arrogance of autonomy, you can identify as what you want to. The Christian says, no, I can't. And no, I won't. And no, I don't want to. My identity is Christ. I am in him and he is in me. I am right with him because of him. And he is right within me because he loves me. My life is Christ. That is what now deals with all of the stewardship of life. It is being a Christian that tells me how to be a husband, how to be a father, how to be a pastor. I go to Christ. This, my life is not my own. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. That's my identity at this point in time in my life. And until believers begin to live like that, the church will continue to be just another piece of the furniture and we will be impotent without any impact of salt and light. But when Christians get discipled in the church so that Christ is their life, their life is for Christ, their life is hid in Christ, and their life exists for Christ, when that happens, everything changes. Marriages, families, everything else 
stuff starts to change. Maybe not overnight, likely not overnight, but everything begins to change. And everything gets changed to the glory of God and not to us. Jesus is not the additive to help me get through the, the, the jangled edges of life. The jangled edges of life are sin and the consequences of sin. The answer is Jesus. And Jesus doesn't save me to make sense of those jangled edges. Jesus saves me so that I am his and he is mine. And that's what makes sense. And that's what leads us into life. And that's why my heart is bound up in this book of Romans for you and for me. That's why I want not just Romans. I don't want to just get done with Romans. And I don't want Romans simply to get done with me. I want the gospel of God as distilled and expounded in the book of Romans to do something to me and in me for him. And I want to do it for you. And I want him to do it for you. He's done it. Listen, I, there's a reason I chose the Apostles' Creed. In this day and age, with all of the chaos and the polarization and identity this and identity that, I wanted you to understand the essentials of the faith. Somebody says to you, what is the gospel? You can just come back and say, well, let me tell you what the gospel is. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Lasting. Amen. That's what I believe. So be that forever. Can we sit down? I'll buy lunch and let's walk through this. My creator, my redeemer and my sustainer. And he invites you to know him. And now I want to go to Romans. That lays out for us the gospel of God as the opening salvo of teaching in the New Testament after the gospels in the book of Acts. I want you to know it. I want us to know it. And because it brings us to a singular identity that affects all of our callings in life. So we become intentional evangelists, churchmen, stewardship of all of life's resources, roles, and relationships. It's transforming. There was a man of amazing abilities, an astounding man with amazing abilities. His life was being destroyed. All of his intellect, all of his, everything that he has that was extraordinary. It was being destroyed as through the dissipation of immorality and ungodliness. He had a mother that was back home praying for him in, in Milan, Italy. And as she prayed for him, he came to the end of himself. And finally, he was walking around in despair, contemplating suicide and anything and everything. And as he was walking around in despair, he heard some kids playing a kid's game. And the, a, a phrase was being repeated in the kid's game. Tole lege, tole lege, tole lege. Latin, take up and read. He says, God goes home and gets his mama's Bible. Takes it up to read. He opens to Romans. And he reads, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
It is the power of God unto salvation. And his life is transformed. And the greatest intellect in Christianity is cut loose for us. His name was St. Augustine. I love Romans. He began to provide educational initiatives that hundreds of years later, one of those schools had a man that was in despair because he couldn't have peace with God. And the guy that mentored him said to him, I want you to teach the book of Romans and read what Augustine said. He taught the book of Romans. He read what Augustine said, and he got not only to Romans 1.16, but 1.17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written. Righteous shall live by faith. Then he went to Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that Augustinian seminary in Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther was set free and the Reformation ignited. Romans. What he taught from Romans made its way to another Augustinian school with another brilliant scholar. He read it, and when he read, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His life was transformed. He called it his sudden conversion. His name was John Calvin. Praise God for Romans. Not many years later, he'll write the first of six editions of the greatest works of systematic theology for us, the Institutes, Calvin's Institutes. And what he writes will later be taught in a small group Bible study that's being attended by a fellow who was struggling. How can I be born again? Do I need to be born again? He went to Christ Church College in Oxford University, and he's at this Bible study. And there he is at a place called Aldersgate, and they go to Romans 10:13, which is where we started our worship service today. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he did. His name was John Wesley. And then comes the igniting of the great awakening that gave birth to our nation. Then the great awakening hits Wales. And there's something called the Presbyterian Methodist Church. That's a combination And the greatest preacher in the 20th century is saved as the legacy of the Great Awakening. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. The last 17 years of his life, he preached Romans. And his biographer, Ian Murray, says, you can't know Murray. You can't know Martin Lloyd-Jones unless you know the book of Romans. Paul, Augustine, Wesley. Luther, Calvin, you. You see, Paul starts out saying, here's the exposition of the gospel of God. When we get to the end, Romans 16, this is what he'll say. My gospel is the gospel of God. Your gospel. And Christ, your life. Everything changes. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the moments we could be together in your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience and kindness to us and the love that you show to us. Holy Spirit, if if and when and however you're speaking to someone who has come here searching today, may they hear the good news that God the Father has loved them and gave the Son of God. God the Son has loved them and gave himself for them on the cross. And may they hear God the Holy Spirit has loved them to bring them to this moment that they may see and hear and trust and obey. Give their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And Father, for your people, God, we so easily let the world identify us or identify us with the things of the world. Father, give us our identity in Christ. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. Now all of life belongs to him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.